0: This morning we're going to read from verse 17 to verse 30. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house, With my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Truly I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dipped his hand with me in the dish. The same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, You have said. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and brake. And gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give increase and that your word would find a place within our hearts. As your word, Lord, is sown this morning, as we turn our attention to your word and to the words of your Son, we just pray, Lord, that we would have hearts that would receive, that wouldn't be stony or choked by distractions and many other things, Lord, but that we would have hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Please speak to us afresh this morning through your word. Please change us by what we hear. Please point us this morning to you and to To your love and all of your wonderful attributes, help us to see you afresh this morning and give glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series through the book of Matthew, we are now in the midst of the passion narrative. And last week we talked quite a bit about what the passion narrative is. The passion narrative is the betrayal, the trial, suffering, Death and resurrection of Jesus. And the Passion narrative recorded in all four Gospels is the most important part of those four Gospels. All the Apostles who wrote a Gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recorded the Passion narrative. You, you remember that there's many things that one of, the Gospels will, one of the Gospels will record that the others don't. But they all know this is the most important part. The sufferings of Christ... The passion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been foretelling this to his disciples. Since Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been telling his disciples, the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of men. He'll be mocked, scourged, crucified, they'll kill him, and he'll raise to raised from the dead on the third day. So Jesus has been telling the disciples this. This is no accident. The passion of Christ doesn't spoil anything in the plan of God. It's not that Jesus came and, no, don't betray me. Don't crucify me. You're going to ruin it. The passion is the purpose for Christ coming into the world. The reason that Jesus was born was for what we're about to read here. You'll remember in chapter 1, verse 21, you can turn with me there, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is. Going to be born, the angel comes to Mary and to Joseph and announces the birth of Christ, announces the coming Savior. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, While Joseph thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the reason for Christ coming into the world. And his name tells us his mission. You are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That is why Jesus came into the world. The best Christmas carols that we sing at Christmas time make the connection. They're not just mere sentimental songs about God being born, but they connect the fact that Jesus was born so that he might save us from our sins. So, for example, uh, in one of the most beautiful Christmas carols we have, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of the lines goes like this Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. And how does he accomplish that? How does Jesus, by coming into the world, save us from our sins? And there's only one way. And this is why Jesus is the only way to the Father. This is why Jesus is the only way for a sinner to be saved. This is why as Christians we proclaim to the world that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, that if you don't believe in him, you'll perish. And this is because the only way that Jesus can save us from our sins is through his death that he accomplished for our salvation. That's the only way. And without his death, without his passion, as we're going to read, Christ would be nothing to us. It's very important to understand that. If Jesus had just come into the world to teach us the things that he teaches, minus his crucifixion and death, what he taught wouldn't make any sense. He'd be an idle babbler, and I'm certain that none of us would even probably know who Jesus is. If he hadn't have been betrayed mocked, scourged, crucified, and resurrected like the scriptures foretold. None of us would know and none of us would care and he wouldn't mean anything to us, even if he did everything else, minus his passion. Last Sunday we talked about how the passion of Jesus was appointed by God, that none of it was an accident, and that God ordained it from before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. This is God's plan. And as we read through the passion narrative over the next few weeks, We need to keep that in mind and this morning I'd like you to keep that in mind as well that everything we read was appointed by God. We also looked last week how Jesus' passion was appreciated and how Mary broke the alabaster box and poured the precious perfume and worshipped Jesus because she knew he was going to die and Jesus' passion was was appreciated and has been appreciated ever since. She wasn't the only person in the world to appreciate it. And we also ought to have a heart full of thanksgiving towards God. As we read through the passion narrative, let's keep that in mind as well. And finally, we also talked last week about how Jesus' passion was appalling. It was appalling. Just because it was appointed by the Father, just because everything that happened to him, we can say, yeah, that's ordained, that was written, that's the determined, determined plan of God, doesn't mean that it's not appalling. doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't horribly mistreated and that man hadn't sinned against God and that they aren't responsible for their sins. They are. As we looked at last week, Jesus was mistreated by God. God's uh, foreordination of these things does not take away human responsibility. And let's keep that in mind as we go on, that the passion narrative proves to be the greatest witness to the sinfulness of mankind. Ever doubtful that men are sinners? Just read over the Passion narrative and you'll see that men are sinners. But by seeing that, we see the goodness of God who loves sinners. Amen. So let's keep that in mind this morning as we look at now the next section in the Passion narrative, which is the Last Supper. The Last Supper. Look with me at verse uh, go back to uh, Matthew 26 and we'll look at verse 17. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'd like to just give a, just a brief background on how the festival worked. The Passover, the Passover festival was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. That's a Hebrew month. We don't follow that calendar, but in the Hebrew month, which falls about... Uh, in the middle of March and April. Between March and April is Nisan, the month that the Hebrews follow in their calendar. And on the 14th of that month was the Passover. And the Passover was when that nation of Israel would commemorate their redemption out of Egypt, when God, long ago, sent an angel of death to slay all the firstborn in Egypt and in Israel at that time but that the nation was redeemed by the slaying of a sacrificial lamb and whoever sacrificed that lamb and put that blood on the door, they were preserved and they were redeemed. And so on the 14th of Nisan, which was the day that that happened, Israel was commanded by God to celebrate a Passover meal to remember that. And they would do that on the 14th of Nisan. In fact, they still do it today. They still celebrate that today. And the Passover meal was followed by seven days of what's called... Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in those seven days, no one in Israel was to eat anything that had leaven in it. No, no leavened bread, or everything had to be unleavened. What the unleavened bread signified, and the seven days, which is a complete number, it signified their redemption. It signified, actually, their mi- miraculous redemption. Because the reason why the bread was leavened, it says in the book of Exodus, is because God redeemed them so miraculously, they didn't have any time For the bread to leaven. And so Israel left Egypt before their bread could even leaven. That was how quickly they were redeemed by God. And so they were to remember that, seeing that this wasn't the work of man, because if it was the work of man, it would have been a long, arduous process. This was the work of God. God redeemed us without our work. And so they would remember that for seven days after the Passover. And in Jesus' day, that period of time, the Passover and Unleavened Bread, would be called either Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread indistinguishably. Uh, It was just eight days of celebration that you could call Passover or Unleavened Bread. Eight days total. And so now we see that the first day of the feast has come, or it's, it's right upon them, and the time has come to think about where they're going to eat the Passover. Jerusalem at this time is absolutely packed with pilgrims. Jerusalem, they would say, would multiply many times its population uh, during the Passover festival. And many people in Jerusalem would open their homes to strangers. So uh, they, there would be lots of strangers in your home at that time if you lived in Jerusalem eating the Passover together. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus commands his disciples to prepare the Passover. Here it doesn't give us that detail. Jesus says, go and prepare the Passover that we might eat it and then the disciples ask them this question which we have in verse 15 uh, or sorry verse 8 verse uh, 17 they say where will you that we should prepare to eat the Passover where do you want us to do it and what follows is an interesting story where Jesus tells them to go into the city and Matthew doesn't give us all the details but you'll probably remember go into the city there's going to be a guy carrying a water jug follow him to his house knock on his door tell him that the master needs his upper room and he'll give it to you. Now some commentators think that Jesus had prearranged that, that he had already spoken to the man in advance, so there's really nothing miraculous about it. It's just the guy that he had prearranged. You know, Make sure you're standing in the corner of this and that in Jerusalem at this time. I'm going to send my disciples. Other commentators think that this was more of a miraculous event, that Jesus told them to do something, and he had foreknowledge of where that guy would be, and he had prepared that house in advance, who knows, in God's mysterious ways. Maybe God had sent a messenger to that person and said, You're going to have special company. Make sure that house is ready. I personally believe it was a miraculous event. I think the disciples wouldn't have been oblivious if Jesus had prearranged and set up where they would eat. Look at verse 18. Jesus tells them, go into the city to such a man and say to him, the master says, my time is at hand. My time is at hand. I want you to consider Jesus' awareness of his life and of his passion. His awareness of his, the purpose of his life. My time is at hand. Can you imagine? You don't usually hear people talk like that, right? When was the last time you heard somebody say that? Maybe if they're dying in a hospital, right? But Jesus wasn't dying in a hospital. Jesus was at a feast, and Jesus knew that his time to die was at hand. If you read through the Gospel of John, many times over, Jesus mentions his hour had not come. They wanted to kill him, but his hour had not come. But finally, at the end, Jesus, in his final prayer, John 17 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name, the hour of his death had come. This was the purpose of his coming, as we had been saying. And just as Jesus, I believe, had appointed, look at it, it says in verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them. And Jesus appointed them to go into the city and they'd meet that guy. And I believe it was a miraculous happening. Just as Jesus had determined what would happen just in their arrangement of where they'd eat the Passover, so God had arranged and determined exactly what would happen with Jesus in his passion. Everything Jesus said to his disciples came to pass. They went to the city, to Jerusalem. They found the guy with the water pot. They followed him to his house. Lo and behold, the room was prepared, and the guy had it available, and they ate there. And just as everything that Jesus said happened, so everything that God said in the scriptures happened as well. You can go to the Old Testament, and you can read all about the passion of Christ. And everything that God said came to pass. We can be sure that what happened to Jesus was the plan of God. We can have confidence in that as believers. And announce that to the world. What happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago was the plan of God, and it means something very important for you. Look at verse 20 with me. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve Can you imagine the mood of Jesus during this meal? Think about it. Jesus understands this is the last supper that he's going to have with his disciples. Jesus understands that that very night he's going to be betrayed. Jesus understands that he's standing on the precipice of his sufferings and it's not just he's going to suffer randomly and things are going to be spoiled in the plan of God. Jesus understands this is the red hot moment in the plan of God. This is when he's going to suffer for the sins of the world. This was the plan that God had from before the foundation of the world and he's now sitting there eating that last supper with his disciples. Just imagine his mood at that time, even if the disciples were oblivious. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this to his disciples when they sit down at the table. He says, with desire have I desired this Passover. It's a Hebraism meaning, with great desire have I longed for this moment, for this Passover with you. Now Jesus had had eaten many Passovers before. His whole life, every year he'd had a Passover, he'd eaten one. But this Passover was the one he greatly desired to eat with his disciples because it was his last one. And it was unique for this reason. Because at this Passover, Jesus was going to disclose to his disciples the meaning of his death. Of course he'd be excited. And of course he'd be longing to eat it with them because now he's going to announce to them the meaning of his death at the very last supper he'd eat with them. John Wesley wrote this concerning his desire to eat the Passover. Christ desired it both for the sake of his disciples to whom he desired to manifest himself farther and this solemn, at this solemn parting, and for the sake of his whole church that he might institute the grand remor- memorial of his death. Jesus knew all these things and he knew this is what he was going to say at this Passover. So truly, what a seminal and unprecedented night this was in the history of the world. The Last Supper is famously portrayed by Leonardo da Vinci. How many of you can picture in your head Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper? It happens to be the most reproduced religious painting ever. Uh, but the problem with that image is that it puts a, a incorrect image into our heads of what that Last Supper looked like. If you remember da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper, you've got a long table and you've got Jesus and the disciples sitting behind that table, right? Sitting in a very a European manor behind a table. Long table and there they all are. Jesus is in the middle and they just spread out to his sides. I want you to imagine rather what it would have been like. Jesus and the disciples would have been lying down on the floor around a low table. The Apostle John was laying on Jesus's breast. It would be a little awkward to lay on someone's breast. If you're sitting at a European-style table, just try it this afternoon. <laughs> <coughs> There they are laying down around a low table. The Passover, uh, normally in the Middle East, when people would eat, they would either sit on the floor or lay down. It was actually required when the Jews celebrated the Passover that everyone would lay down because laying down was a posture of rest and it was a posture of freedom. You weren't a slave. You weren't standing there eating or standing there serving. You were laying down at ease and this signified their Identity as free men and free women that God had redeemed. The joy of the night, however, is cut abruptly by a shocking announcement that Jesus makes. Look at verse 21. As they did eat, just imagine they're enjoying themselves and they're eating. And now this is what Jesus drops suddenly in the midst of this festival. Truly I say unto you, That one of you, and they're all laying there, eating together, having a good time. One of you will betray me. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that when Jesus made this announcement, he became troubled in his spirit. Jesus is not a stoic. Okay? Even though everything that happened to Jesus was appointed by God, Jesus was not emotionally uninvolved. He was no stoic. What happened to Jesus was appalling. He was horribly mistreated. And though it was appointed by God, it still troubled Jesus to be mistreated by men. And so we should see it too. When we read these things, understanding. we should understand what is involved here, what sin is involved here, and how evil it truly is. Betrayal is one of the worst evils a person can ever commit. It doesn't just hurt. Betrayal stings because it's a violation of trust. It's easy to be hurt by a complete stranger, right? It's a lot more difficult to be hurt by someone who's close to you and someone whom you trusted makes it it much more difficult. I know when I play the game of risk, I don't mind losing fairly, (laughs) right? If I have a team and there's another team and we're battling it out, I don't mind losing if our team stays together, But it doesn't feel good to lose when someone on your team betrays you, right? Maybe you can relate to me. Webster defines betrayal as this. To deliver into the hands of an enemy by treachery or fraud in violation of trust. This is a stinging thing and Jesus felt the sting of this betrayal because he loved Judas and he spent three years with Judas. Jesus wouldn't have been emotionally uninvolved with Judas in those three years, do you think? You think for three years, Jesus says, You're going to betray me, so I'm going to keep my safe distance with you. No, not at all. Remember when Judas finally does come and betray him, he kisses him, and Jesus says, Friend, you betray me with a kiss? This is not the first mention of betrayal. Jesus has mentioned to the disciples that he would be betrayed, you'll remember. The Son of Man, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests. I'm sure that Peter was on the lookout for a betrayer, but I'm sure that Peter probably wasn't thinking it would be one of the twelve. None of the disciples suspected Judas. I'm sure Peter was on the lookout outside maybe one of the 70, maybe one of the crowd that's following around. I'm going to keep my eyes open, keep my sword ready for whoever's going to betray Jesus. I'm sure the disciples were absolutely shocked when they heard for the first time from the lips of Jesus on this night that it would be one of the 12 that would betray him. To us, it's no surprise. As the readers, we've already seen Judas has been behind the scenes selling away Jesus for 30 uh, 30 pieces of silver. But the disciples don't know about that. And this is an absolute surprise at the Last Supper for them. What a shock that would be. The lesson is a shocking one for us. This teaches us about the human heart. And we see here in the case of Judas, brothers and sisters, that the human heart can be very hard. The human heart can see miracles. The human heart can spend much time in close proximity with Jesus and still be unaffected by Him. This is what Judas tells us, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He tells us this. You can be around Jesus, you can be around His Word, you can be around miracles, you can see lots of things, and still not be saved, and still be unaffected by Jesus. His heart was so dull, so dishonest, that even after all he had seen, he betrayed Jesus. Ask yourself, If you've seen much, if you've seen miracles, if you've heard much, if you've been around much talk of Jesus, because obviously we don't have a physical proximity with Jesus anymore, but it's the same today. In fact, it's probably even more of a danger today because we don't have that physical proximity with Jesus, but we can be around the teaching of Jesus. We can be around and learn about Jesus And our hearts can still be dull and dishonest. And we're unaffected by Him. And we haven't truly believed on Him. We haven't truly acknowledged Him to be the Son of God. The disciples are sorrowful. They're afraid it could be one of them. They didn't suspect anyone in their group. So now they're in complete doubt as to who it could be. Verse 22 says they all became exceedingly sorrowful and they began, every one of them, to say, Lord, is it I? Although in the Greek it bears out more of a negative tone, like, not I, Lord. Is it I? In verse 23, Jesus actually doesn't really give them any help. This is not to be mistaken. Verse 23 is not to be mistaken with a similar saying in the Gospel of John. And you remember in the Gospel of John that Peter tells John to ask Jesus who it is, right? And Jesus says, the one to whom I give the bread that I dip, that's that's the one who betrays me. And then Jesus dips some bread into the sop, gives it to Judas. And Judas, then Jesus says, go and do what you are going to do quickly. This is not to be confused with that. Here Jesus announces to everyone that he that dips his hand with me in the dish the same shall betray me. Now it's kind of an ambiguous saying because they have all dipped their hand with him in the dish. And Jesus isn't announcing who it is at this point. He's simply pointing to a prophecy in the Psalms, verse 41, chapter 41, verse 9, which says, Yes, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. The point is, Jesus reinforces it by saying, Yes, it's one of you who will betray me. One of you who eats with me, who shares the same dish with me, my own familiar friend, will betray me. Matthew doesn't tell us about that private exchange between Jesus and John. But in verse 24, here's what Matthew does tell us. One of the most terrifying sayings of Jesus, this should sense. Send shivers down anyone's spine. Terrifying saying of Jesus, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe unto the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been good for that man if he had no existence. No existence is better than the existence that this man is going to have. We can take away three things from this saying. First of all, once again, seems to be a recurring theme and recurring point that God wants us to know. Everything that happened to Jesus happened according to God's appointed plan, as Jesus says. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So, the first point we can take here there is no mistakes. Judas betraying Jesus was no mistake. The Son of Man goes to his death as God had determined. The second point we can take away from this is that though God appoints everything, human responsibility is not removed. Woe to the man that betrays the Son of God. God is using man's sin. He's not picking up man like a puppet and forcing man to do evil. In His determined plan, He's using man's sin and men will be held responsible for what they do and for their sins. So the second point is there will be no excuses on Judgment Day. No one can say, well God, you appointed it was your fault. There will be none of that on Judgment Day. No mistakes and also no excuses. And the third point, the obvious point, is that eternal damnation is a reality and not everyone will be saved. There will be no universal salvation. There's kind of a popular, that's a popular idea that has been um, appealing to many people, that everyone will be saved, that ultimately everyone will end up okay. But if that was true, Jesus would never have said this about Judas. If Judas were to ultimately end up okay, then it would be worth being born, wouldn't it? Even if you went through 25 trillion years in hell. If you came out on the other side and were able to spend an eternity with God, it would be worth it. In fact, if, eternal damnate, if, if damnation is not eternal, then it's not really damnation at all. Eternal damnation is a reality. The third point is there will not be relief for those who die apart from Christ. We can apply this beyond just Judas. I think it's perfectly fair to say it would be better for someone not to have been born if they had not believed in Christ. A lot of people say life is worth living, even if they go to hell. People, t- people say that a lot. They tell me that. Well, even if I go to hell, it's been good life. Life is worth living. But that is not true according to Jesus. That's a, that is a viewpoint that doesn't take seriously the world that you actually live in. You live in a moral world. You live in a world where good and evil and justice is a serious and true thing. You're not just here to eat ice cream and enjoy yourself and then, oh, I guess I'll go to hell at the end of the day. It was, it was good while it lasted. You're going to realize on Judgment Day that life was not about ice cream. Life was about righteousness, and you were unrighteous, and punishment is no little thing. No, it wasn't worth eating ice cream for 50 years than to be eternally punished. Punishment is no little thing. You're going to realize this is actually what life is all about. Righteousness. And so these words would apply. J.C. Ryle writes this, Except a man is born again, except a man be born again, he shall wish one day that he had never been born at all. Sobering words. Brothers and sisters, people ought to take care of their soul. It's one of the teachings of Jesus, isn't it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus says, I'll tell you who you should fear. Don't fear man who can throw you in prison or shoot you in the head. Fear God, who after you've died can destroy body and soul in hell. That's who you need to fear. Jesus taught eternal punishment. We saw that at the end of Matthew 25, didn't we? Where Jesus says, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Take it from Jesus. Take it from the Son of God who's, who came from heaven to earth to show us the way as we sang this morning. Take it from Him who taught eternal punishment as a reality. Don't listen to those who say, don't worry about it. Oh, I guess we'll find out when we get there. Uh, it's been worth it. As, you know, at least it's been worth it just to live this life. Don't listen to them. Listen to Jesus who warns you about eternal punishment. And He also tells you the way to be saved. No one need perish. Jesus Christ died so that whoever wills may have eternal life freely. But will you take care of your soul? That's the question. Amazingly, in verse 25, Judas also asks Jesus. Of course, this is completely disingenuous because Judas knows it's him. Judas has just been with the high, the priest. It's a disingenuous statement. He's trying to look good. He maybe thinks that if I don't say something, I'll be suspected by Jesus, perhaps. Not I, Lord, right? And Jesus says in what's a a Hebraism or an idiom, you have said means you got it, just like in English when we say you got it. It's a qualified approval. Instead of saying yes, you affirmed the statement of the other. You said it yourself. And you're correct. Judas is an example of what not to do for us. Don't be dishonest with God. Don't pretend with God. God sees you through and through. You cannot hide from God. You cannot lie to God. But what you can do is listen to God and take heed to what He says. We come now to the most important part of the Last Supper. This is the takeaway point, brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus was excited about. This is why he greatly desired to eat the Passover. He didn't greatly desire to eat the Passover so he could announce the betrayal. He greatly desired to eat the Passover for this reason. This, what we're going to look at now, is what makes the Last Supper the Lord's Supper. What turned this one Last Supper into Into the enduring Lord's Supper that's celebrated constantly every week for the last 2,000 years. It's Jesus' teaching at the table when he proclaims and interprets his approaching death. And by doing that, Jesus transformed the Passover festival forever. This is why he was so excited. He wanted to announce his death and explain it to the disciples. Now in verse 26 we read that as they were eating Jesus took the bread and he blessed and he broke and he gave it to the disciples. Now at this point there's nothing unusual about what he's doing. There's nothing unusual about uh, breaking bread and giving thanks to God. When it says he blessed the bread we need to realize what that means is he he blesses God for the bread. He gives thanks to God for the bread. Often when we pray we bless the food and that's not really correct. We bless God for the food. And this was, this was the blessing. When he gave the blessing, this was the blessing that they would say. And it's more than probable that Jesus said this when he blessed God for the bread. The Jews would say this at the festival. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. This is what Jesus would have said. But what he says next would have been surprising. What was new is what he goes on to say in the red letters here. Take, eat, this is my body. Now then the disciples heard that they would have been a little surprised. Whoa, this is new. So Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, gives the blessing, take and eat, this is my body. And likewise with the cup in verse 27, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them. Nothing unusual. That's what they would do in those days. That's what they would do at the festival. And here's the blessing he would have said to God for the cup. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Everything is normal. It's what comes next that's not normal. In the red letters, drink all drink ye, drink ye all of it. Meaning drink everyone of it. For this is the blood of the new testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Whoa! Now that's new, okay? Jesus has now departed from the liturgy. When he gives them the bread and says, this is my body, and he gives them the blood and says, this is my blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of sins. Jesus declares to the disciples in symbol the unmistakable meaning of his approaching death. When he does this, Jesus declares at that table that his death is given by him. Remember, it's not taken. No one takes my life. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, and says, take and eat, this is my body. He gives his life for us for the forgiveness of our sins, for the establishment of the new covenant. This is the meaning of the death of Jesus according to Jesus himself. Theologian James Denny writes this, he is establishing at the cost of his life the new covenant, the new religious relation between God and man which has the forgiveness of sins as its fundamental blessing. You'll remember in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is which is undoubtedly on Jesus' mind as he says these words. You remember in that... Section we have the new covenant that God promised would come and in the new covenant God basically says this he's going to do all this good for Israel and it's all going to depend as its foundation upon the forgiveness of sins that is it's through the forgiveness of sins that all these blessings will come upon you and not through your obedience to the law That's what the new covenant is all about. Behold, the day is going to come, God says, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not going to be like the old covenant that I made with them at Mount Sinai when I brought them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. And all that breaking of the covenant did was bring a curse. No, it's not going to be through obedience to the law that men will become my people and that men will be blessed and will know me. It's going to be through the forgiveness of sins. One thing we know in the scriptures is that it's sin that brings death and it's righteousness that brings blessing and life. Righteousness does not come by the law. The Old Covenant shows us that. No one will ever be righteous before God. No one will ever be blessed by God. No one will ever obtain life from God through obedience to commandments. Never. The Old Covenant shows us That doesn't work. In fact, that's the teaching of Scripture. It was given to show us that. The New Covenant, on the other hand, is the bringing in of righteousness, blessing, and life, not through the commandments at all. Commandments are never mentioned in the New Covenant, but through the forgiveness of sins. And how do we obtain the forgiveness of sins? Jesus is telling us it is through His body, and His his body being broken, and His blood being shed, for the forgiveness of sins. Wow, what a statement. I am going to die. I am going to be crushed. I am going to be shed. My blood is going to be shed as a sacrifice. And it's through my death that the forgiveness of sins will come. Not through your obedience to the commands as the law requires. The law says if you do it, you'll be forgiven. It's through the death of Christ you'll be forgiven. And what happens if you're forgiven? All the blessing and all the life will flow to you Because of this. It's now time. It's all going down right now. Jesus' death is just about to happen and he's made this announcement. I want to make it very clear this morning that that it is most foolish and superstitious to think that Jesus here is talking about the elements as if they had turned literally into his body and his blood. And that's the way we're supposed to think about it. Much foolishness and trouble has arisen because of these words, take and eat, this is my body and this is my blood. And I think this is the work of the devil who comes in at a critically important point and corrupts the truth and makes men's minds look away from the truth and distracts them with other things. He takes men's eyes off of the death of Jesus and onto the elements of the bread and the wine. And teaches people, this is literal. This is tra- called transubstantiation. That is that the bread and the wine has changed its substance. Not its appearance, but its substance. And it becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. And unless you actually eat this transubstantiated bread and wine, you can't be saved. And by the way, you can't just eat it once. You have to eat it over and over and over again. You know that this is what billions of people Almost a billion people believe who claim to believe in Jesus. Let's make it very clear here this morning so that we can keep our eyes on what we need to keep our eyes on. Jesus by no means means, meant literal bread and wine that this is literally my body and this is literally my blood. Eat of it. This was symbolic, pointing to his death. That's the obvious explanation of this passage. I'd like to give you a few reasons why that is. This is obviously the language of John chapter 6. You remember in John 6, long before the Last Supper, Jesus was telling people that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to have any life in you whatsoever, right? And a lot of people were bothered by that. A lot of people said, this is nuts. What do you mean we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And Jesus saying, I am the bread of heaven that comes down from heaven, that gives life to the world. But he explains it by saying that the bread that I give is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Jesus is clearly referring to his death. And what it means to consume his flesh and to consume his blood, according to Jesus, is to believe. In John chapter 6 he says, whoever believes in me will never hunger and will never thirst. Jesus is clearly talking Symbolically, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and they are life. Another reason why we can see that this is, this is symbolic is the disciples would have been very troubled at that exact moment if they had understood Jesus as saying, this is my actual flesh and this is my actual blood, drink of it. As good Jews, they probably would have had a hard time drinking and eating at that exact moment. What if they're like, really? Should we eat this? But they had no problem with it. They understood he was referring to his approaching death. That he was speaking in symbol. Another question I would ask is, which was his body? Was it the one that was standing there? Or was it the one that was the bread and the wine? Which is his body? If he says, this is my body and my blood, does that mean he's no longer in his body? Does that mean he's no longer needing to lay down his life? Jesus hadn't even gone to the cross yet. Rather, we're to take these words that he's anticipating what is about to happen and he's preaching his death in symbol. Did Jesus need to drink his own body and blood? Jesus would have eaten the bread and drunk the wine that night as well. But it would be strange if he had eaten a transubstantiated bread and wine. Why didn't Jesus say this this bread symbolizes my body and this bread symbolizes my blood? Many people would ask that. But the uh, interesting thing is that uh, scholars will point out is that there is no Hebraic, Aramaic word for symbolizes. That the only way to say it in the Hebrew or Aramaic would be to say this is my body and this is my blood as we've already seen in the parables where he says that the harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels and all these things. Brothers and sisters, we do an extreme disservice to Christ by making the elements more than symbolic of his death. And what Jesus wants us to see is that this is about faith in his death, not eating bread and wine. This is about faith in his death, not ritual. This is about his blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins on the cross, which we believe in and put our trust in, not some metaphysical transformation of the elements. That we have to physically consume. This is my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins, is the language of death and sacrifice. R.T. France says this: the whole idea of vicarious suffering for the sins of God's people, which runs throughout Isaiah 53, underlines these words. What makes us right in God's sight is not a priest offering a sacrifice to God in the elements of the bread and the wine, which is blasphemous. But what makes us right with God is Christ, once and for all, offering himself on the cross for our sins. Once and for all, no need to be repeated on the cross. He bore our sins, and it's through his death on the cross that we are made right with God through faith. This is what he's proclaiming. The blessings of the new covenant are yours and they are mine through faith in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, this is Jesus' own explanation of his death. It is his death pictured in a meal. Isn't that a wonderful symbol? His death pictured in a meal. Jesus is serving the meal. Jesus is giving himself. Jesus is saying, you need to partake of this. It's my death symbolized by a meal. Brothers and sisters, this is the true meal that will nourish your soul. How many of you have ever been really hungry and you just want to eat really bad, right? And when you eat, it satisfies you. And when you don't eat, all you can think about is food, right? Well, this is how it is in the Spirit. The Lord's Supper, and now I'm speaking in symbol, the Lord's Supper, His death on the cross, His sacrifice at Calvary, when He had His body and His His body broken and His blood shed for what? For our sins. He took our sins. As Isaiah 53 says, that we all had sinned and God laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And as a sacrifice, our sins were placed on Him and He suffered the penalty of death that we deserved. And by that sacrifice, we are made right with God. And when we are made right with God, blessing and life comes to us freely not because we deserve it but as a gift and this is the meal that will nourish you this is the meal that will save your soul this is the meal that will satisfy you this is the meal that will transform your relationships with other people this is god's meal that he invites the entire world to and he says come and eat without money and without price delight yourself in abundance delight yourself in good this is god's richest meal that he's prepared for you at his expense And you can eat of it freely. It doesn't cost you. And it will mean everything. Jesus' death pictured in a meal. Come and eat through faith and be saved. Take and eat. This is my body and this is my blood. Given for you. Shed for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. How many of you have some sins that need to be forgiven? Here it is. This is how you get forgiven. You don't get forgiven any other way. You don't get forgiven by joining a church. You don't get forgiven by keeping commandments. You get forgiven by partaking of this meal. And this meal is the death of Christ. You partake of it by faith. Need forgiveness? You got it there. And anyone who has believed can announce to the rest of the world, I've eaten and I'm satisfied. I know where to eat. Come. Right? As Christians, we can invite others to the meal and tell them where to get forgiveness, where to get hope, where to get peace with God, where to obtain righteousness and blessing. We point as the church to none other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here's how we should celebrate the Lord's Supper when we remember it together. We should keep in mind that it is symbolic. We do it in remembrance of His sacrifice. We're not repeating his sacrifice. We're not being saved by eating physical elements. We're doing it in remembrance of him. We're repeating this symbolic meal and we're putting our faith in him, not in ritual. When we take the Lord's Supper, certainly we should be sober-minded. We should be solemn. We should be joyful. But we should not be ritualistic or superstitious. And it seems like we as men are prone to superstition, aren't we? God says in Deuteronomy, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, beware lest you start worshipping them. I think a similar warning could be given to men. When you see the bread and the wine, beware that you start worshipping them as if they've turned into Christ. We have failed if we treat the Lord's Supper like that. It's about His death, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. As often as we eat the bread and the, drink the cup, we proclaim His death until He comes. We proclaim his death. Kind of an odd saying, isn't it? We proclaim his death until he comes. His death wasn't the end of him, was it? We proclaim his death until he comes. The one who died for our sins and saves us is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 29 also implies the resurrection. Jesus says, right after announcing that this is my blood shed for the, for the remission of sins, which is a clear statement of sacrificial death. In verse 29 says, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. He's announcing also the implications of his resurrection. He's not going to go away forever when he died on the cross for our sins. The one who loved us and saved us is alive. And we will see him one day, dear brothers and sisters. We will see the one who loved us and saved us on the cross. We will drink the fruit of the vine with him in the age to come in our Father's kingdom. We as Christians have so much to be thankful for and so much to be excited about. Amen? Amen? If you're not thankful and if you're not excited... Maybe you need to remember Jesus Christ and what He has done for you and that you're going to see Him very soon. Finally, in verse 30, we see that they conclude their Passover festive meal with a hymn. Charles Spurgeon writes this about this. Was it not truly brave of our dear Lord to sing under such circumstances? Isn't that amazing that Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples? They probably sung often, but that Jesus sung a hymn. And just imagine his mood at that time, the excitement, but also the soberness of what was about to happen. Now, what we know is that the Jews would traditionally sing what's called the halal in the Psalms, which is Psalm 113 to 118. And I'd just like to read in closing this morning the final part of Psalm 118 that Jesus and the disciples most likely would have sung that night. And notice how it's all about the death of Christ. Just imagine Jesus thinking about this as he's singing. The stone with the, which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. That's an encouraging verse for Jesus to think about as he's going to be betray, betrayed and rejected and... The chief leaders in Israel will scourge him and beat him. The stone which the builders refused is going is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing; it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. Which interestingly enough, in the Hebrew would sound a lot like Jesus' name. O Lord, I beseech you, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord who has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. I will give thanks unto the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. On the eve of of Christ Christ's sufferings Jesus explained what it was all about the passion of Christ was appointed by god for our salvation it was an appalling revelation of the sinfulness of man and it deserves our endless appreciation thanksgiving and praise jesus explains to us what it is all about his body being broken his blood being shed for our sins. So Christians, let us remember this today and worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, we truly don't grasp how truly marvelous this is. But Lord, in our feebleness, we thank You for seeing us in our sinfulness and loving us. And loving us so much that you would send your Son to die for us. Thank you for his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. Help us all to grasp in a deeper way the death of Jesus. Keep us free from all foolish superstition. Help us to put all of our trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, please cause us to uh, have our hearts full of thanksgiving and excitement every day as we think about you, as we proclaim your death and your coming. Thank you for this time, Lord, to look at your word. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.